Good morning. It's so good to be here again. It's good to see you all. I, I recognize some of your faces. I'm sorry if I don't remember all of your names. Um, but it's always a privilege, it's always a joy when I get the email from Pastor Matt inviting me to come preach, because I'm sure that every time I preach, he gets all sorts of complaints, and he tries to push it off and push it off, and eventually just feels bad, and he invites me back, so I'm back. Um, can we just take a moment and praise the Lord for air conditioning? Amen. Uh, he is good. It is 40 degrees outside. I don't know if it's exactly 40 right now, but that's too hot. 22 to 25, that's Goldilocks. This is, this is death. <clears throat> But nonetheless, it's great that summer's here, isn't it? Uh, it's exciting. Summer's a great season. I was just reflecting this last week about some of the summers I've experienced in the past. I'm, I'm young enough that the summers have all felt quite different from the next one, where I've heard that as I get older, they start to blend into each other because they all start to be the same. But they're not there yet. Um, one of my favorite summers was the summer that I came off of high school. I graduated uh, and I went to work at Sunnybrae Bible Camp in the Okanagan, which, you know, is beautiful. But if you look at the job description, it wasn't, you know, the, the best job description. It wasn't the dream job. You wake up at 7 a.m. and you immediately are dealing with the puddle that's in someone's sleeping bag. Uh, you are trying to get kids to go to, to breakfast and then you spend all day running around in the scorching heat with nothing but a pancake and, pancake and grilled cheese in your stomach. And then you get to the end of the day and you just plead with children to please just stay in your bunk. Just stay in your bunk. It's bedtime. That, on the surface, that doesn't sound that great. And yet somehow it was one of my favorite summers ever. Some, somehow, I would wake up every morning and I just felt alive. I, I felt like my time with the Lord in the Word and in prayer was, was so rich. I felt like I was growing. I was learning more about Him. I would look around and I would see these kids and I saw God at work in their lives, some of whom would, would uh, believe in Him come the end of the week. And, and I see them now serving at that same camp, doing what I was doing. And I just felt alive. I felt like it was a rich season. And that, in contrast to another summer, which on the surface should have looked like the best summer of my life, because it was the year before I moved out here to start attending seminary, and uh, I worked at, for Jasper Park Lodge Golf Club as a golfer services attendant. Dream job, because all I, got, all I had to do was talk to people about their day, make sure they're having fun, and I got to talk to them about golf. That was my whole job. Um, and, I mean, the real reason that you take a job at a golf course is the perks of free green fees. And so I would take advantage of that. Almost every day after shift, I'd go out and play around round of golf. On the, on the surface, that sounds like it would be a great summer, and yet somehow it was one of the hardest summers of my life. I remember waking up and feeling just incredibly dry in my time with the Lord, feeling frustrated. It's the year, it's the summer before I was going to start attending seminary, and I just felt like my, my relationship with the Lord was, was weak. Um, I would go to work, and I felt like it was pointless because I just, in my own heart, that I wasn't settled. And that's, that's not... That's not crazy for us to picture, right? We, we all have those experiences. We, if you're new to, to the church, if you're new to the Christian faith, you probably start noticing that people use some weird language. We, we say weird things. One of the things that we will talk about is we, we refer to seasons in our life that are like walking in the wilderness, right? It's a valley experience. Or you have a mountaintop experience. You're on top of the world. It's so good. It's so rich. We, we go through these seasons. And that's, that's a normal Christian life. You go through seasons. You go through different struggles, and you go through different highs. Things, things change. And so we're starting here at Tri-City. You're starting a, a new sermon series through the summer in the book of Psalms. I know you did this a couple years ago, I believe, a couple summers ago. I think I preached in that series. Um, but this is, this is really, a, a, as much as it is a theologically rich book, and you, if you remember that series, you, you remember that, you're, we're going to see that today. We're going to see that in Psalms to come. It's rich with teaching about who God is. It's also one of the most practical books in the Bible. 
It's one of those practical books in the Bible. As much as it's, it's just songs and prayers to the Lord, what it is, is all sorts of different writers in the middle of their circumstances, responding to the Lord, interacting with the Lord, in, in trying to make sense of what's going on around them, and yet still responding to him in who they know he is. There are times when the psalmist is just overjoyed filled with joy. Lord, I, I, I pant for you as a deer pants for water. I just long for you. There's a richness to the moment. And yet there are times when the psalmist will say, Lord, where are you? You know my life better than I know my life. And I see the struggle going on here. Why won't you help me? And we get to see the psalmist wrestling with the reality of their life and the reality of who God is and try and figure it out. And so today, we're going to be in Psalm 90. If you have a Bible, you, you'll want to turn there. Psalm 90. And this is a really fitting psalm to, to start a, a series in the book of Psalms because it's actually, for all that we know of the book of Psalms, this is the oldest psalm that was ever written because it was written by our brother Moses. And Moses wrote this, but our best guess, just based on what's inside in the themes, our best guess is that he wrote this somewhere between the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. If you remember the history of Israel, right? They're brought out of Egypt. God, God rescues them. They go to Mount Sinai. God gives them his law. And from there, the very next task is to go and take the promised land, right? This is what God called them out to do. He says, I have a land for you. It's, it's already yours. Just go take it. And they come up against it and they send these 12 spies into the land. And the 12 spies come back and 10 of them are like, oh my, uh, there's giants and there's walls. We're hooped. And the other two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, hold on. Did God not say that this is already ours? Let's take it. And yet the people of Israel listen to the 10 democracy wins. <clears throat> and they decide not to go in. And so God says, okay, well, if this is what you choose, if you won't trust me, if you will choose to be unfaithful to me, here's, here's the plan. You're going to wander in this desert for 40 years. And one of the reasons you're going to wander is so that this very generation who has been faithless to me will die. So some of the, some of the best estimates will say that in the wandering for about 40 years, about a million people died. So you can imagine, if this is where Moses is speaking his heart out to the Lord, if this is where he is, he's, he's wandering the desert, it's dry, it's frustrating, they're waiting 40 years to just finally get to where they want to go. And Moses, who's the leader of these people, is now seeing people that he has known, friends, family, passing away. And you can imagine the, the feeling on his soul. You can imagine just how dry, right, literally and figuratively, how dry of a season it would be. But let, let, let's take a look at just exactly what's going on in his heart. At the end of the psalm, Moses pleads for something. And so let's see what he's pleading for to help us understand where we can press this into our own context. So in verse, verse 13, he says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have, have compassion on us. Help us. And then he asks for four things. He says, God, would you satisfy us? God, would you make us glad? God, would you show us your works, your great and glorious works? And finally, God, would you establish the work of our hands? You ask for the things you don't have, right? Lord, satisfy us. Why? Because he wasn't satisfied. Because the people of Israel weren't satisfied. God, make us glad. Why? Because they probably weren't very happy. God, show us your works. Probably because they were looking around and feeling, they weren't feeling like they didn't see God at work anymore. Where, where are you? I thought you were our God. And God established the work of our hands because everything that we do feels absolutely pointless. Feels meaningless. God, give meaning to our lives. So if that's what he's asking for, 
uh, we can feel that, right? I, some of us maybe are in a season just like that right now, where those, that's a, that's a fairly uh, apt description. Yeah, not satisfied, not happy, frustrated because I don't see God at work and I don't feel like my life has meaning. We might be there right now. If you're not there right now, I, chances are really good that you're going to be there someday. Almost every mature Christian will tell you that what their life has been has been a series of ups and downs. Times of high and times of low. Chances are you're going to end up in the low somewhere, sometime. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with the difficult, frustrating, dissatisfying days? Well, how does Moses deal with it? And maybe we can learn something from him. So I just have three points from this psalm, uh, three applications for us. How do we deal with the difficult days? My three points are this. First, we have to remember our God. Secondly, we have to acknowledge our guilt. And finally, we have to pursue our gladness. Okay, so three Gs. Remember our God, acknowledge our guilt, and pursue our gladness. Okay? So let's, let's start with the first of those. Remember our God. I'm just going to read verse 1, uh, and it says this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I'm just going to stop there. Moses is going to, Moses is going to zoom in. When I say remember our God, there's all sorts of things about God we could remember, right? His, his infinite eternity. He's, there's so much about God we can remember. Moses zooms in on two things, God's goodness and his grandness. I know that's a lot of Gs, I'm sorry. God's goodness and grandness. And here we have the first, the very first words out of Moses' mouth, right? Put yourself where he is. He's frustrated. He's looking around. People are dying. Feels like there's nothing going on in his life. And notice he say, Lord, I remember that you have been our dwelling place. You could, you could take that and translate it. Lord, you have been our home. You've been our home. And not for us, not what home is for some of us, but what home should be. And what, what should home be? What, what is home at its best? Well, first of all, home, home is the place where you can be exactly who you are and not worry about it. You should be free to be exactly who you are in your home. Again, not, not necessarily as it is for some of us, but as it should be, right? That, that you should be able to be free to be your weird, quirky self when you're at home, as opposed to when you come to church, right? And this isn't a necessarily a bad thing, but when you come to church, you put a bit of a face on. It doesn't have to be a hypocritical thing. You just, you know, you're not, you're not going to act exactly the same way when you come to church as you do at home, right? One of the best examples of this would be, what, you know, home snacks. Everybody has home snacks, right? There are certain things that you'll eat at home, like a big tub of, you know, cookie dough in front of the TV. You wouldn't bring that to church, Right? You're, you're going to act a little bit different when you're in church than you would at home. Because why? You're at, when you're at home, you're free. You're free to be who you are. And this, it's part of what Moses is saying. God, I have known you to be the place where I can come to be exactly who I am. And I can tell you that I'm dissatisfied. I can tell you that I'm frustrated because I'm home. You're my home. I'm free to be me. But the other thing that's great about home is in this context, you would never have the idea of a dwelling place as something that was a, a single occupancy rental. It's not, it's not home in that day. A dwelling place, a home, always had a family in it. Always had a family in it. And in a, in a family, again, as it should be, not, not for some of us as it is, but a family, there, there's this living dynamic between parents and their children, right? Children frustrate their parents and the parents still love them at the end of the day, right? Siblings bicker and they get bitter at each other, but at the end, at the end of the day, they still get along, they still love each other, as it should be, maybe not as it is. This, this is what happens in a home. There, there's, there's a place for you to belong because you're a part of a family. And one of the great gifts of the gospel is a family. Uh, the great gifts of the gospel is that we're adopted into the family of God. He's our father. And we get to look around this room and say, I have a family. Quirky, weird, strange family. 
but a family that I belong to. So Moses starts and he just, as much as we know where he's going to go, he's frustrated, he's dissatisfied. He just starts by remembering, God, you've been good to me. You've been my home. I'm free to be me and I have a place to belong. I know that's true. I know that's true in my heart. And he just sets himself with that reminder. And so when we find ourselves in those, in those difficult days, I think this is a great, great starting place. We, we stop to remember, okay, God has been good and he will be good again because he, he is good. But then he, he focuses on God's grandness. Remember our God, remember his goodness, remember his grandness. Let's start at verse two, carry on. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. I love those two images. A thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it's past. What, what's, the, what's he saying there? It's like yesterday in that it was 24 hours? No, no. It, it's like yesterday in the sense that yesterday's already over. What's a thousand years in the mind of the Lord? <laughs> it's, well, it's already over. <laughs> By the time it took me to finish that sentence, it's already over. Or he says, it's like a watch in the night, which in that day was about four hours, right? Four hours is a thousand years. Some of us sleep for twice that much. Some of us sleep for thrice that much, and that's a problem thousand years, like four hours. It's gone. This is, this is how great, how grand the Lord is. You, you sweep them away, verse five, as with a flood. Sweep who away? You sweep, you sweep mankind. You sweep us away as with a flood. They're like a dream. You can picture the flood. That's not hard, right? You imagine a dam and it breaks and the water rushes to crush everything in its course, right? It's just gone. Uh, you, you sweep them away as with a flood. Um, and then he says, they, they're like a dream, if you, you might have a different translation. It's actually a really hard line to translate. Um, I don't know that because I know Hebrew. I just know that because that's what my commentaries told me. Uh, that, that, that ESV takes it. They're like a dream. Our life is like a dream. How, how fast is a dream? We were last night, if you were dreaming, how long did you dream for? Well, I don't know. It felt like two hours, but maybe it was 10 minutes. It's, it's, there's no concept to it. It just goes. Or the NIV will take it to say that it, it's translated as you, you bring the, take them away in the sleep of death. The same, the kind of the same picture, but it's just a little different. How fast is it for us to go from life to death? Well, it's like falling asleep. That's how short our lives are. It's like falling asleep. It's like grass. We're like grass that's renewed in the morning. In, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. You can imagine the environment uh, in Israel is quite arid, quite dry, lots of sand. So when the evening comes, the, the temperature drops, unlike here where it stays at an unreasonable temperature last night, um, it drops to a reasonable temperature. And in the morning, the dew starts to settle on the, on the, the land. And so it now has a moisture. And as the sun, sun cups o- comes over the hills, it gets the temperature, it gets the warmth that it needs, and it begins to grow. Right? This grass begins to come up out of the ground. But as the day goes long, the sun beats down and it gets higher in the sky and eventually the grass, wi- grass withers and it dies. That's, <laughs> that's the picture Moses uses for our life. Yeah, in the morning you grow and flourish and all of a sudden the day goes by and you're gone. But the point that Moses is making is not that this is how temporary our lives are. The, the point he's making is found in the constant... Subject, you, God, you return man to dust. You say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday. You sweep them away. You, 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 you. The the point that Moses is making is not our lives are temporary. God, you're magnificent. 
you're grand. My life in the scope of who you are and what you've done in history and time and eternity is nothing. It's like Moses is recognizing at the start of his, he's going to get to his prayer, he's going to get to his plea, but he's remembering, okay, so for me to make this plea is like a grain of sand in an ocean of desert to cry out and say, will someone just put a drop of water on me? A one grain of sand in an ocean of desert. How important is that grain of sand? Maybe not that important. So, so for us, we, we wrestle with these frustrating, difficult days. And what, what our first thought is, because of the stain of sin on our hearts, our first thought is, this should be happening to me. Why, 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 why? God, help me. Why won't you help me? And Moses is remembering at the start, he's saying, God, I recognize that for me to ask for help is a really small thing. It's a, the, the frustration of my life is not, a, is not as big a deal as I think it is. He's remembering that. And that, that's where we start on the difficult days and the frustrating seasons. We start by remembering, God, you've been good, but God, you are grand. I'm gonna appeal to you, but I, I recognize that I'm small in the sight of your eternity and your great majesty. That's where he starts. So we remember our God. Secondly, we have to acknowledge our guilt. This is where Moses says things we don't want him to say, but he does. Verse seven. For we are brought to an end by your anger. Let your wrath, by your wrath we are dismayed. You, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. I love that uh, And there. He says, our, our, our life is 70, or by reason of strength, 80 years. Moses goes on to live about 120 years. So evidently, he thinks he's pretty strong. But, but what's he saying? He's saying, Lord, we, are, we pass our days under your anger, under your wrath. What, what's, he, what's he saying? It, it, you, our, our sins, our iniquities are before you. Moses is acknowledging here that, Lord, the frustration, the dissatisfaction that I'm enduring in my life is not unjust. In fact, this is exactly what I should be experiencing because God's wrath is kindled against our sin. And this is, this is where the doctrines of the Bible clash with the opinions of the world because what, what are we told constantly, constantly, right? You, no, you're innocent, You haven't done anything. When something goes wrong in your life, no, it's not your fault. Something bad is happening to you. It's not your fault. It shouldn't be happening to you, right? And so we cry out and we say, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And Moses, to his credit, starts and he says, Lord, I I recognize this should be happening. I recognize that the frustration and the dissatisfaction, the, the difficult days are just because your anger is kindled against my sin. In fact, he goes, he goes one step further, although we wish he didn't, he does. He goes one step further in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Who, who considers the power of your anger? He, what, he, he's saying, who understands just how angry you should be? Who, who understands your wrath according to how holy you are? He's essentially saying, God, I recognize that the bad and the frustration going on in my life is not unjust. In fact, it should be worse. In fact, it should be much worse. This is one of the the most difficult doctrines of the Bible for Christians, for non-Christians to to reckon with is the doctrine of eternal punishment. 
that there is the teaching of the scripture that our sin, the penalty for our sin should be eternal punishment. That that's how great our sin is in the eyes of the Lord. To a holy, perfect God, our sin is worthy of eternal punishment. And Moses, Moses is looking at his life and saying, I'm dissatisfied, I'm frustrated. I get that this isn't unjust. In fact, it should be worse. But I need to make a really important distinction here because the Bible makes a distinction. And this would be really helpful, I, I hope, for your Christian life to understand this. There's a distinction in the Bible between what we call retributive consequence for sin. You, you hear the word retribution, the idea that you, you sin, you commit a sin, you have to pay the penalty, right? So you commit a crime, you can stand before the court, maybe you've committed murder, and uh, the, the penalty is life in prison. So you will pay the penalty to make, for, make up for the crime, right? It's the cost. Pay the cost. And on the other hand, you have what's called the disciplinary consequence for sin. This is where, when I was young, my parents, we would go shopping in Hinton, which is about 45 minutes from where I grew up because there was no good shopping where I grew up. We'd drive 45 minutes and we went to a Canadian tire. And as we were at that Canadian tire, I, you know, wandered off on my own and I found myself a nice little hockey puck that I put in my pocket. And as we were driving home, my, my parents look in the rearview mirror and they, they say, Joshua, uh, where, where'd you get the puck? Ugh. Canadian tire. <laughs> So my dad pulls over, turns around, drives us straight back to the Canadian Tire, stands me in front of the teller with the puck in my hand, weeping, and, I had, and he forced me to apologize to her and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. I did mean to do it, but people lie when they apologize. <laughs> I didn't mean to do it. Why, why did my dad make me do that? I, he could have just made me pay the price, right? The price for it should have been I pay for the hockey puck somehow, and then maybe something beyond that, right? P pay some sort of penalty. But why would he make me stand in front of the teller with tears streaming down my face and apologize? Because he wanted to teach me something. He didn't just want me to pay the price. He wanted to teach me something. He wanted me to learn so that the next time I was tempted to do something like that, I realized I shouldn't. This is, this is a distinction that made, that's made in the Bible because when, when I'm telling you that the, the frustration, the difficulty, the dissatisfaction, the, the, all sorts of terrible things that go on in our lives is not unjust, we, the alarm bells should go off in our brains, to be honest. Because we have to think, what's the gospel? What is the good gospel of Jesus? What did he come to do? He came to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. To, to pay the eternal punishment that you and I deserve. He took it. And he took it all on himself and he suffered every bit of it so that we wouldn't have to suffer any of it. So then how can I say that the frustration, the difficulty in our life is due to our sin? Is not the penalty paid for if we trust in Jesus? How does this work? Well, it, if you have a moment, well, you do have a moment. You're stuck here. Uh, <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Turn to Hebrews 12. I'm going to start just at verse 7. And it, it, it says this. This is one of the great passages of the New Testament to help us understand the, the difficult things in our lives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If we are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Don't get caught up on the word sons there. The reason he's using the word sons, not just sons and daughters, is because the son in the family was the one who inherited all things from the father. One of the great glories of the gospel is that men, women are given the inheritance of sons. So when he says he disciplines you as a son, he's saying, you, you have it all. You have everything of mine, all of us. But what's he saying? He says, every hardship, the enduring that we, that we take in our lives is God's discipline as a good father, disciplining his children because he wants to, to weed out the sin and the, and the self-centeredness in our hearts so that we might share in his holiness and in his righteousness because in those things, we, in, we enjoy the fullness of life because the fullness of life is found in him and he's perfect righteousness and holiness. So when Moses is saying, I recognize that it's not unjust. I recognize it should be worse. He's totally right. There is so much sin in our hearts that God needs to work out that we should actually, in the middle of our frustration, in the middle of our difficulties, be able to say to the Lord, it it should be worse. But thank you for your grace that it's not worse. Help me to learn what you're teaching me. Help me to learn it. So we, we don't look at our lives and, and think, well, it's this, you know, I, I'm paying the penalty of my sin, right? And we get the idea that I, you know, I go, I steal a chocolate bar from a grocery store and I walk across the street and I get hit by a bus. That's, that's, not, that's not what's happening. But it's the idea that there is such a stain of sin in the world that its frustration is gonna land on all of us and God is gonna discipline us so that we would learn to walk in his ways. So we remember our God. We acknowledge our guilt. And finally, we pursue our gladness. We pursue our gladness. Uh, let me, leave. I'm just going to start at verse 13 and go to, the, go to the end. Oh, in Psalm 90. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. My point for us from those verses, and I think what what we need to see out of Moses' plea is that we, in the difficult days and the frustration, ought to pursue our gladness. Now, on the surface, you might think, hold on, that sounds a bit self-centered, and it sounds a bit self-helpy a little bit, right? I, I thought that the Christian life was supposed to be dedicated to, to living for the glory of God and to, to working to be obedient to him and live in righteousness. Here, here's, here's my question. Why is it that we think that those things wouldn't lead to our gladness? And yet somehow we're kind of convinced of that, aren't we, as Christians? And we get the idea that if I'm going to glorify God, it means that I'm just going to pick up my bootstraps and I'm going to figure it out. And it's going to be a frustrating, rough life, but I'm going to glorify God in it. Why is that the idea? Why is it the idea that if we're going to obey him and walk in righteousness, that we're not going to be happy? Uh, Follow me for a second with this. If we are supposed to glorify God, as Christians, we're supposed to glorify God. Yes? Uh, If we're supposed to glorify God, would God be glorified? If we were to embrace and accept the gospel, does God want that for us? Does he want us to embrace the gospel? Yes, right? That makes sense. He wants us to embrace the gospel. What is the gospel? Let me give you, let me give you uh, John three sixteen. You know this verse. You can probably recite it in your head. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So there's the offer. God's offering to you and he will be glorified in you accepting the offer. His offer is eternal life. What is eternal life? Is it just that you're going to live forever? 
Well, thankfully, Jesus actually defines this term for us. If you have a notebook or just a phone, I just want you to put these two verses side by side and take a, take a minute to look at them this week because when I saw them, they changed my Christian life forever. John 3, 16 and John 17, 3. John 17, 3 says this. It's Jesus praying to the Father and he, sa- he says to him, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life is to know the Father and to know Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternal life, the gift of the gospel, is a living relationship with the living God. That's that's the gospel. It's not just your sins are forgiven, you can try and figure out the rest of your life until you die. No, 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 right now, you can have eternal life. And that eternal life is a relationship with a heavenly Father who loves you and will discipline you, but it will be to your joy. That's eternal life. That's the gospel. So God would be glorified in us accepting that. Yes, and would that not be our gladness? Would that not be our joy to know the Father? Yes, certainly. So what is it that Moses is asking for? Look, look, look at verse 13. What does he say? He says, return, return our crops and our cattle. No, no, return the green grass. No, he says, return Lord. God, I want you in my life again. I feel like you're far from me. I want you. Come back. Lord, satisfy us with what? With your steadfast love. With your unfailing love. Satisfy me. Make us glad with the very same thing, with your love. Show us your great works. Show us your glorious works because we want to see you at work in our lives because you are our God. And establish the work of our hands. If you're not with us, God, our lives lack meaning. And we go to work and it feels absolutely frustrating and the daily grind because he's not with us. What does Moses want? He wants God. Notice what's missing in the whole plea at the end of this psalm. There's not a single moment where Moses asks for his circumstance to change. Not a moment. But what he wants is that in the circumstance, in the frustration, that God would be with him. Because that's his heart. So we have to pursue our gladness and our gladness is God himself. Not just that our circumstances change, but that we have him. There's a um, John Piper's ministry. Uh, if, if you've never heard him, you sh- I would encourage you to listen to some of his sermons. They're excellent. But he has a ministry uh, called Desiring God. And they will end almost every podcast with this, with this phrase. And I'll just uh, end our time together with this phrase. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, you you have been our home. And we want to know you as our home, as our place to come and to dwell and belong and to enjoy the living relationship that we can have with you. And so God, we pray that you would draw near to us. We pray that we would draw near to you. Would you give us strength and boldness to do so, to come to your throne of grace and plead with you to come and help us? But Father, would you remind us, and we thank you for the reminder of this psalm, that that the great joy of our lives, the great glory of the gospel is you, that we can have you and we can know you, and that's the offer. So God, help us to take hold of that. If we haven't yet in our Christian lives, help us to take hold of this great gift of knowing you and enjoying you. And if we haven't yet accepted Christ at all, God, would you give us, would you give us boldness to do so? 
Give us, give us the heart of humility to say, Lord, I have not followed after you. I have not desired you. And yet now I want you. So help me to turn from my sin and to pursue you with the rest of my life. So God, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the air conditioning. Thank you for the, the ability, the grace that it is to gather in the capacity that we can. We're so thankful for it. So bless us now as we respond to your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.